All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father, and thank you for not allowing us to escape our own little religions. Thank you for pointing those things out. Thank you for giving us the grace to deliver us. We are so very grateful for those things, but mostly for your Son's work on the cross to make even an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. I think full blast. Give me a second. <clears throat> little bit too much for me. Burning my retinas out. I'm serious. Then hey, then you'll be getting an email tomorrow. It was a little dark. <laughs> What's wrong with you guys? Can't you get it adjusted? <laughs> Anyways. Anyone here tired? Isn't that funny? I am too. Everybody's like, uh -huh. Life can get wearisome, can it? It can. I just read this quote before class from William MacDonald. We are often weary in his service, though not weary of it. Amen, huh? Yeah. We are often weary in his service, though not weary of it. And that's a nice way to think about <clears throat> going about the spiritual life uh, it's not always uh, easy, so to speak. Uh, there's certain potholes and there's a certain weariness to it. Um, but we have truth. We have something that pulls us along. We have a relationship. We're falling in love with our Lord uh, who takes care of us no matter what. So, again, we might grow weary in our service, but let's not grow weary of it. Uh, that came upon my reading the following. Go to Hebrews 4.10. Hebrews 4.10. <clears throat> Hebrews 4, verse 10. Good way to get started. He's pretty much starting the same way he's been starting all week. Hebrews 4.10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Again, that's a sort of a callback to the Sabbath back in Genesis. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Again, we are, not, we are often weary in his service, though not weary of it. Verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall uh, through following the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, and this has to do with what we've been starting classes with, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice the dynamic there. How do you find, put it in reverse, how might it be that you receive mercy and find grace in time of need? How? Go boldly to the throne of grace. Boldly. And that's what I've been teaching, is that humility is a bold thing. It's not an aw shucks thing. It's bold. That aw shucks thing is what we would call false humility, and that's garbage from the world. So let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might or may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So to drive that point home up here on the board, humility receives grace boldly. Boldly. Uh, and it has no qualms about going to the throne of grace boldly. That little conversation that I had, you know, hey dad, hey child of mine, uh, hey dad, this is your problem conversation. Uh, he loves that. He wants you to realize that your life is his problem. The best thing, or the thing that we do is we get in the way. So humility receives grace boldly. On the flip side is something called false humility up here in the board. False humility is nothing more than covert arrogance. Covert means that hidden form of arrogance, not the chest-beating kind, the one that's obvious. This is the one that's really, this is why I wrote the book, or wrote a book on it, um, is because it's really hard to, and even in our own way, discover in ourselves. Uh, false humility is nothing more than covert arrogance in full bloom. Again, that's a reference to what's coming in that book. Saying things like, quote, well, I don't want to bother God with that issue is about as off as a person can get. It's arrogance in the sense that it assumes responsibility for God's work. So we can't say as the clay to the potter, I'll take care of this arm, or I'll take care of this eye, or I'll take care of this aspect of life, I'll take care of that, and you take care of the rest, God. That's us trying to play games. What we realize as we grow up in the grace and knowledge of God, as we grow in wisdom, the more mature a person becomes, the more they rely on God for absolutely everything. For example, and this is just a little list, you know, tying shoes. Anybody tie their shoe? There are many people in this world that cannot. Breathing. How about breathing without any pain? Many people in hospitals right now that are breathing in pain. Every single breath causes them pain. Blinking. Going to the bathroom. Etc., etc. There are many, many people that can't do these things. And so we should be grateful. We get so darn familiar with everything. And then we become like spoiled little brats. It's amazing. So just reflecting here, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about people lately and how the vast majority seem to be utterly stuck. That's what's been on my heart lately. I look around and it's not, it's not judgmental at all. It's not me trying to throw stones at anyone. It bothers me to my core. People are stuck. Let me explain. What I mean is that everything is 
pretty much always about them. And they're stuck. Everything is always about them and about finding the next way to celebrate themselves. It's not even about Jesus. Jesus is like an afterthought. And like I said, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm saying this is why people are stuck. Because everything's about them. Every, everything is about them. Even coming to church is about them. It's amazing. It's always, you know, me, me, me. So it's always about finding the next way to celebrate themselves, not Jesus, about finding the next way to achieve something for personal gain. And then to even show it off to the world saying, look at me. But these things, anything we achieve, like Paul said, we are we are by the grace of God. Otherwise it was what? Human power. Possibly not even from God. These are the things that I see. So look around you over the next few days and ask yourself, what do you see? Do you see a bunch of Christians? If so, what are they celebrating? This is not the first time I've asked this question from the pulpit in the last few months. If they're Christians, ask yourself, what are they celebrating? Who are they celebrating? What are they working for? Who are they working for? So let's dig a little deeper into the root cause for such things. And again, I'm not trying to throw stones at all. I'm saying this bothers me because this is what makes people stuck. They're too, bu- they're too busy celebrating all the wrong things. So let's dig a little deeper. We recently studied out in some detail what exactly the, quote, filling of the Spirit was in the Bible studies. We came across a very nice passage that echoes exactly what we are pondering right now. Echoes of living the spiritual life. Because that's what being filled means, after all, my friends. Living the spiritual life means being filled with the Spirit. It means to be consistent with what the Spirit wants for you. And He doesn't want you celebrating the self-life. He doesn't want you celebrating this or that minus Jesus Christ there with you. He doesn't want you making room for little religions. He doesn't want you running out and, you know, climbing another mountain for the sake of something that you can point to for yourself. That's what the world sells you. It's a lie. It's a lie. So concentrate for a moment. Living the spiritual life. It's not about doing this or that specifically as a part of some homemade plan. It's about being filled. Pleroo means to be fulfilled, by the way. So if you want a fulfilling life, if you want to be filled, pay attention. The control aspect of being filled is a blessed surrender. Remember that. It's a blessed surrender, not a disgruntled adolescent submission. Again, living the spiritual life, it's not about doing this or that specifically, as a part of some homemade plan, it's about being filled. Plural means being fulfilled after all. 
the control aspect of being filled is a blessed surrender. In other words, <laughs> you're not trying to control anything. You're surrendering to Him. That's the blessing. Not some disgruntled adolescent submission. As we're going to note in Scripture in a passage that describes being filled with the Spirit, a.k.a. living the spiritual life, every aspect of living is encompassed in this kind of living. Not kind of, not part, not a little bit over there, not coming to church a few hours a week, not, you know, hey, I, I read my Bible, you know, I get up in the morning, I have my coffee, I read my Bible, and when I go like this, boom, when I close the Bible, it's off to the races. For me, it's back to the cosmos, and then church becomes a job. The spiritual life becomes like a job, just another aspect. You know, oh, time to go to church, one aspect of my life. Oh, time to study my Bible, another aspect of my life. We'll get to this. Every aspect of living is meant to be encompassed by living the spiritual life. Every step, every breath, every time you do anything. You do it in an estate of gratitude for all that God's done for you through Christ Jesus. These are the things that underpin the spiritual life, folks. Not do's and don'ts and you know this command and that command. Living the spiritual life is an attitude, not a regiment. It's being in Christ in the moment, not just knowing it, although that precedes being. We sense His presence in everything. That's very different, folks, than some laundry list of protocols or commands or things to do that you think are pleasing to God. Living the spiritual life is an attitude. It's not a regiment. It's being in Christ in the moment, not just knowing it. We sense His presence in everything. It's true we are indeed soldiers for Christ. But you know what? Contented soldiers are much better than discontented, worn-out ones. I do remember my days in the service. There were a lot of MWR activities and buildings on the base. MWR is morale, welfare, and recreation. There was a lot of that stuff on the base. Why? Because the U.S. government knows what I just said is true about soldiering. That good leaders do everything they can to keep the soldiers happy and content. They make better soldiers, even in the field. So they create an all-encompassing environment to promote a certain way of life. And there's the analog, folks. If you're a soldier, it's a way of life, not a job. Ask anybody that's been any branch of service. They own you. They do their very best to make your life as comfortable as possible, to make you content. But it's a well-known fact that you're on call 24-7. They can call you at any time they feel like it. 24-7. So, you have this choice. You can either accept that as your way of life. You say, well, this is who I am now. I'm a soldier. It's my way of life. They own me. And you accept it and you're okay with it. 
Or you can be like some people do, and they say, I'll never accept that, and guess what? Their time and service is miserable. So living the spiritual life, you are a soldier, you know that. You know you've been enlisted, it's in Scripture. Soldiering is a way of life, not a job. I could probably end tonight's lesson right that, right there, and you all would have a lot to think about. Soldiering is a way of life, not a job. You're not a soldier from, you know, 9 to 5. You're always a soldier. You're not a soldier just when you come to church. You're not a soldier just when you contribute to the welfare of the church. You're always a soldier. So it's, it's a way of life. It's not a job. You are on call 24-7. The only way you won't become utterly frustrated with the uncommon requests for your time and energy is if you totally submit to the cause. You must commit fully, otherwise you'll be miserable. That's what it means. That's what living the spiritual life means. It means being all in, understanding that this thing that you've been called to is a way of life. It's not something you do more frequently as you grow up in the Word of God. It's who you are. It's meant to be who you are. It's not, you know, this is who I am. I'm a soldier for Christ when I go to church, or I'm a soldier for Christ when I'm, you know, on the mission field, or I'm a soldier for Christ when I'm trying to evangelize somebody. And then everything in between, you know, since it's just a job, it's compartmentalized. That is completely wrong. Completely wrong. So soldiering is a way of life, not a job. This is exactly why so many people can't handle the truth in the Bible. They treat the spiritual life as if it were a job instead of a lifestyle. They think they're picking something up, in other words. I've seen it in the ministry as well. Those who treat their responsibilities in the ministry as a job never last. They never last because to them it's just a job. But those who treat the ministry as an integral part of their life, those are the ones that flourish. Just look at my leadership team. I was thinking about them. Look at my leadership team. Every last one of them, including our newest addition, Deacon Don Parent. That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> consider, they all consider the ministry an integral part of their lives. And not just on the receiving end of things, for they are fully invested personally. Of course, this same paradigm exists for the spiritual life in general, up here on the board. Your life, until you're all in, life will be a mishmash of frustration and joy, confusion. It's really a picture of the war being waged between your new self and your old self, which is your flesh. Until you're all in, you're going to be confused. You're going to be frustrated. I'm not saying you don't have frustrating times. But until you're all in, if, if you just consider the spiritual life like 
another job, a part of your job description as a human being. In other words, it's one of many things that you do as a human being. Got to set a little, got to set a little time aside for God, because that's one of my 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 job items, one of my core responsibilities, to use industry terms, right? One of my core responsibilities is X, Y, and Z. And there's God right there. He's one of them. So I got to dedicate so much of my time to God. So I guess that means I'll have to do some couple things around the church, you know, this kind of a thing. But don't call me. Don't be calling me Saturday morning when you need help. Because I already made plans. Don't be calling me last minute. Don't be putting me out that way, because this is just a job. Matter of fact, I'm part of the union. I'm part of the church union. You didn't know it existed? Yeah, that's me. Right? This is a job. And I have, you know, these well-defined little boxes. And you're in there, God. You're in there. That's the problem. Until those walls are blown out, you, my friends, are going to be miserable. Because this is what a soldier's life is. It's all in. God owns you. Don't believe that? Read the Bible. He bought you for a price. You are His. Whether you like to think so or not is not the issue. So guess what's going to happen? You know why you're going to be miserable? First of all, He's not going to bless your life if you're doing that to Him. Second of all, God the Holy Spirit's going to be at you every chance he gets. Say, what are you doing? No, this is not how it's going to be. You're not going to find that peace, happiness, contentment that you're seeking for. If you think the Christian life, the spiritual life is but a job. You are a soldier 24-7. This is why... Colossians 3 is one of my favorite chapters, if there is such a thing, in the Bible. Go to Colossians 3.1. Colossians 3.1. <clears throat> so this is, these are the things that I think about. This is why it upsets me when I see people that are stuck. They're stuck because of these core reasons. They're still fighting the reality that the spiritual life is an all-in thing. Colossians 3.1 that they are soldiers, and soldiers are owned, essentially. Their time is his time. Colossians 3.1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Let's jump forward to drive the point on the board home. Again, the point on the board, your life, until you're all in, life will be a mismatch of frustration and joy or confusion. It's really a picture of that war being waged between your new self and your old self. Go to verse 16. This is the analog to being filled. In the Bible study, we flip back and forth between Ephesians 5, where we say, you know, do not, you know, that dissipation, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then there was a whole laundry list of things that matched exactly to Colossians 3.16 and on. Look at this, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what it means to be filled. That's what it means to be fulfilled. That's what it means to have a fulfilling life. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
That is an all-day, everyday attitude. That's not something you just do on a Sunday morning. That's not just talking about, you know, someone playing the piano over here and we sing a few uh, hymns. This is a way of life. This is, you're singing for joy to the Lord. You're overwhelmed with gratitude. You're all in. You're saying, you bought me. I'm yours. Whatever you need. So verse 17 really captures it. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, in other words, everything about you, every step, every breath, everything that you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In other words, living the spiritual life is an attitude of gratitude. I don't mean to be rapping up here, but... Yeah. Right? I mean, it, that's what it is. It's an, it's an attitude of gratitude all day long. It's who you are. That's, you wake up in the morning and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for another day. I don't know what you got in store, but thank you. This is your life. You purchased it. What do you want me to do? That's what a good soldier thinks like. So that's our picture of what being filled and living the spiritual life looks like in brief. However, as the point on the board alludes to, there are so many trappings in this world that keep us from fully committing. Ooh, the C word, right? Commit. Oh. There's so many trappings that keep us from committing to the Lord in this world. As we noted in Scripture on Sunday, the end times are characterized by people who are, quote, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, 2 Timothy 3.5. These are often the religious crowd, and the Spirit had something to say about that crowd on Sunday. They have denied its power. The underlying issue with religion is that it never delivers a person from sin to righteousness. This is what we've been, this is the mode, right? This is deliverance. This is what we've been studying. Salvation perspective, sanctification perspective. Salvation from sin, sanctification to righteousness. Deliverance being the movement. The problem with religion is these people never get delivered. They get stuck. They may even not even be saved. So they really are stuck. So the underlying issue with religion is that it never delivers a person from sin to righteousness because it denies the only power in the universe able to do so. God's, therefore, religion is a plague. Ask yourselves why it is plainly obvious that religious folks are miserable, even though they put on a good face. Religious people are miserable. They put on a good face. They put on a good show. Some of them smile more than anybody, more than humanly possible, frankly. I think it's painted on there, right? But they're miserable. Why are they miserable? Because they're clinging to a different form of godliness. Religious people are experts at putting on a good face, a good show. However, they are thin veneers. Their spiritual lives mere shadows of the real thing. They're not the real deal, and I'm not picking on them. I'm talking about the results of what religion produces in people. It's not the real deal. It's not the spiritual life. It's not fruit of the Spirit. It's something else. It's another 
gospel from another spirit that they're even clinging to, possibly. That's a different form of godliness. Religious people go to church like it's a job. Religious people go to church like it's a job. Not a true part of being all in. For some, it's merely tradition. It's what they, you know, do because that's how they grew up. But where's the heart in that? It is a vapid spiritual life, void of truth, which is why so many of them are complete train wrecks on the inside where only God can see. Go to James 1.21. James 1.21. So we have encouragement from the Word. And again, I just don't want... I'm just tired of seeing that in people. It has nothing to do... Listen, I know how people are made. People are awful. They can't get out of their own way. This, these are the reasons why they can't get out of their own way. They think that the, they think that the spiritual life is, a, is like a job. It's not a way of life. It's like a job. It's like something they do in addition to the other things in their life. That's why, you know, it's what, what fellowship do we have with Belial? What fellowship do we have even with unbelievers? Because how do you compartmentalize God out of the picture in that situation? How's your way of life going to go if you're surrounded by your friends or your closest people to you are unbelievers? How's that going to work? Unless you're able to compartmentalize God away and make the spiritual life a job. Oh, I'll go to church, and I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll go through the motions, but I'm never going to fully commit to God because God says I can't even have those kind of friends. It's not good for me. So how can I possibly fully submit to God? Well, you can't then. And that's a choice that people make, and that's why they're stuck. And that's heartbreaking for a guy like me uh, and many of you that see it. James 1.21, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness... And all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted. In humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Deliver. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. But once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That doesn't mean you go out and visit orphans and widows tomorrow. It means that's the heart that produces that kind of fruit. Not fruit of the world, fruit of the Spirit. Widows have needs, orphans have needs. What does a spiritual person do they respond to the needs when they see them as john would say in i want to say first john 4 
Where's the love? If you see someone in need and you ignore them. One might ask, how does religion happen to someone? The answer is typically rooted in the basic, basic fact of all, which is our running analog to living the spiritual life, that is, living the gospel reality. Pervert the gospel. That's how you do it. Take the gospel and pervert it. Because the, the, the gospel in its purest sense is all-powerful. Think of what uh, Paul says in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the very power of God. The dunamis, it's dynamic, remember? Explosive. So if you get the gospel right in your soul, it's unstoppable. So what Satan does is he builds religions to take the gospel, put a little leaven in, and the whole lump is leavened. And now you've got people insecure. Well, how committed are you going to be if you think the person you're supposed to be committed to Eh, maybe they're real, maybe they're not. Maybe they love me enough to save me, maybe they don't. Maybe the cross was enough, maybe it wasn't. Well, as that goes, so goes your sense of security, right? And it's from faith to faith, and if we think of it as a vector, if the starting point is insecure, guess what? The rest of it's insecure. From faith, being sanctified is all... It's just going to amplify what's wrong at the core. I was thinking, I talked to the leadership team a lot about how this ministry actually came about and how it worked. We came out from out here, folks. And it was like a giant onion, and we peeled it back. We peeled it back, and we peeled it back. And where did we just end up? What's, what's the title? The Gospel. We ended up at the very core of the spiritual life. It says, let's revisit the Gospel, part 58 now. Let's get that right. So that everybody's secure. I have seen, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, but from my perspective, it's obvious. I have seen a change in all of you. I've seen a certain contentment in all of you. I've seen a certain kind of happiness, a renewed vigor even for the Lord, for life itself in all of you, in some way, shape, or form, ever since we revisited the gospel. It's amazing what he's doing. But you know what? We couldn't get there unless we came from here. And there was all kinds of religious garbage that he had to go rifling through. Nope, throw that out. And you know how that goes. And some people didn't want it, so they split, whatever. But eventually we end up at the core. So you ask yourself, how does religion happen to someone? Easy. Pervert the gospel. Pervert the gospel. In other words, most religions have hacked up the gospel by proposing that the cross was somehow insufficient, ignoring the Holy Scriptures altogether. For example, I gave you this on Sunday, John 19.30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished from Tadalestai, used in ancient times regarding the complete satisfaction of a financial debt, for example, on receipts for taxes, in context refers to the completion of the work of redemption. Think of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. All by grace. You know, there was no but in Tetelestai. He didn't go, Tetelestai, but. He said, Tetelestai, and then gave up his spirit. He said, it's done. It's finished. There was no but. Religions like to add buts. 
So there was no but, yet that's exactly what religion often teaches with, unfortunately, the ultimate result that, it, that its followers live a life of insecurity, anxiety, and bondage. So ask yourselves, right now, play pretend for a moment, ask yourselves if, for a moment, you believed that the cross was insufficient. What if right now you had that insecurity in your soul? What's your only other option to being saved then? Well, the obvious answer is to try like hell to somehow add to the cross with your own human good. I mean, what's left? If God's not going to do it, what's left? If someone tells you the cross wasn't enough, what's left? Well, I better get going then, huh? Any religious person, or ask any religious person, and that's exactly what they are trying to do to be, quote, good enough to get into heaven, if just by the very skin of their teeth. That's bondage and insecurity at its greatest heights, given that what's in the balance is eternal life or damnation. Think about that. Want to make someone insecure? Say, you have to be good enough or else I'm going to kill you. You have to be good enough. You're going to spend all of eternity. Think about that. Michelle thinks it's funny. She must have had this conversation. I don't know. I'm not going to avoid it. But think about that right there. If you really want to ex- get to the core of something, make death the issue. You better do this or else you're going to die. I'll do anything. I just don't want to die. Well, if you know about the cross, you say God took care of it. But if you're insecure about the cross, to whatever degree you're insecure about it, all that anxiety floods in. That's religion, folks. The Bible speaks directly to those confused about working for salvation. Go to Galatians 2.21. Galatians 2.21 You know, the Bible's very clear on salvation and the sufficiency of the cross. It's not like it's... It's amazing to me that people that are in certain so-called Christian religions are actually confused about the, the cross. And then you find out that they don't actually read their Bibles. Matter of fact, some religions discourage it, which is you know, like an abomination. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, if you could measure up to some law, and that's all you had to do, then what did Christ do? Think about that. Up here on the board. Then Christ died needlessly, possibly the greatest insult to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ that any human could suggest Yet that is exactly what any religion claiming certain sins were not paid for on the cross are suggesting. To target religion specifically up here on the board on the topic of false humility, religion is nothing more than institutionalized arrogance, a.k.a. false humility. For many of you, sanctification involves delivering you from religion or a religious background. A lot of us in here have religious backgrounds. A lot of us in here grew up in certain religions and then found out the truth. Some of them didn't actually even have names. 
Some of them were, as I like to say, religion by just another name. And then as the Spirit's taught, all of us have little religions in our soul, little shrines we keep and nobody else knows about except God. So for many of us, sanctification involves delivering us from religion or a religious background even. Concentrate for a moment. Instead of trying to, quote, do something about it, the Spirit's been encouraging you to relax and let the Word change you. Romans 12, 1-2. I'll give you the amplified up here on the board. Instead of running out and making another mistake on the topic of sanctification, let us not run out and just try to do and you know, make a laundry list of things to do. Romans 12, 1, the Amplified, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, dedicating all of yourselves, set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is your rational, logical, intelligent act of worship. That is God's desire. But look, folks, as we've learned, you cannot force it. Look, if you don't like vanilla ice cream, you don't like vanilla ice cream. Now, if God changes your taste buds so that you like vanilla ice cream, then you can honestly say, hey, I like vanilla ice cream. If you don't like certain things in the Bible, you can't pretend to like them because God sees your heart. So where does that leave you? It leaves you with humility. Go boldly to the throne of grace and say, this is your problem because I still like chocolate ice cream. Then you want me to like vanilla So you change me. Amen. It's his job to change you. Romans 12, 2. So you have to find that balance in your own soul, folks. Remember, I've taught you this. The commands of God really are better thought of as expressions of his will for you. You don't just take them all, write them all down, and run out and do them. Because your motivation is probably not even correct. You understand them as the will of God. When he says, you know, love each other. This is how, you know, like Christ said to his disciples, love each other the way I've loved you, and then everyone will know that you're my disciples. Well, they can't fake it. Oh, I love you, John. Brown noser. Right? <laughs> Nobody gets it. Yeah, a couple. 12-2. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes, so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect in His plan and purpose for you. Speaking of sanctification, getting back to our primary course of study, let's get really practical up here on the board. Practical sanctification. Sanctification, though a reasonably technical term, is really about learning how to live a life of confidence in Christ, a life of peace with the Spirit's encouragement, and a sense of reality in the gospel truth. In brief, sanctified means focusing on Jesus Christ to the point that everything else fades to the background. I said this on Sunday, you don't have to be a PhD in theology to understand that last statement. Sanctified means focusing on Jesus Christ to the point that everything else fades to the background. 
In other words, God's going to make the best things about your life so attractive to you that that's all you're going to want to focus on. He's going to reveal to you time and time again how very much Christ did for you and continues to do for you. Remember, he sent the Spirit, too, to encourage all these things in you. And there's going to be this sort of rolling snowball effect that over time, if you're humble, you'll get a greater and greater appreciation. And the more you appreciate things, the more you have, what, gratitude. And it's amazing because, I don't know about the rest of you, but you, you know, you, you think that the gospel and being saved is like this one-time event. And it's like, oh, it's so great. But the more you grow, the more you're sanctified now, the more the gospel means to you. You know what I mean? In other words, it's not just like this past event you go, well, that's great because that started all of this. It's as you're growing up, the, the cross, the gospel, all of it means that much more. I was having another conversation today with someone about, you know, sort of living and let live. Jesus hung on the cross. One of the last things he said is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How do you say that? Come on. We can't even, you know, we're going to go to the stop sign over here. Someone's going to do something stupid. And you're going to be, you know, doing something stupid back. <laughs> and there he is being hung up on the cross. And he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're killing me. But they don't know what they're doing. That's the theme that I started off with. That's the thing that hurts so much. To watch people hurt themselves is very painful. To watch people that you love hurt themselves is very painful. I asked on Sunday for a raise of hands. I want to ask you to do it again. I know how much work it was. <laughs> Swear to God, some people were reluctant. They're like, <sighs> I'm like, keep your hands up. Like, oh, what? Were you tired from the, picking up the coffee? What, what's up? So I asked for a raise of hands that, you know, I asked that you raise them if you've ever loved someone and then keep them raised if you've ever been loved. And all hands were raised, obviously. We then looked at some scripture and we synthesized two scriptures that we're both, or both, we're all very comfortable with. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 9.21, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So on one hand, he's saying, I love you all. and the other hand, he says, I'm making you all individuals. So you have to reconcile that in your soul. What does that mean? It means he doesn't want a bunch of drones. It means everybody in here has a purpose. Everybody in here was perfectly made, wonderfully made, as the as Psalm says. right? So you have to grab the whole of that. And say, God, you mean you made me this way? And you know what's wrong with you. You made me this way? I did. I ordained your life. As crazy, as nutty, as chaotic as it's been just till now. I ordained it. For many, many reasons. Who knows why? But he does. Our conclusion was, it's fair to say that God chooses to express his love differently 
to his creatures and that his creatures express their love differently towards him. I mean, you know, it's impossible for you to love God the way I love him. I don't think mine's any better or worse. It's different. I have different things to even be grateful for. I can't understand some of the things that you're grateful for. How am I going to know that? You can't understand the things that I'm grateful for. How would you know that? So it's fair to say that even though God is the wellspring of love, God is love, because of the uniqueness, the individuality of our, own, of our existences, the love is different. Awesome. Wouldn't life be kind of boring otherwise? The point of all that was to drive <clears throat> this very simple principle home on practical sanctification. It's very important for you to feel a sense of individuality, but not a loss of connection with others. You should feel like an individual. You should be not just okay with it, but embrace the fact that you're an individual. Some of you might be like, yeah, but you didn't live my life. That's true. But you know what? He worked something out in you. He worked something very unique out in you. How do I know who you're going to evangelize or who's going to relate to you because of your issues or whatever he ordained in your life? I know he can't do it through me, right? Someone, I think it was DJ, you were saying it today, right? I mean, look, if you're not an alcoholic and you try to speak to an alcoholic about the challenges of being an alcoholic, they're going to look at you and say, I appreciate that you care, but you have no idea what you're talking about. Whereas another alcoholic can talk to another alcoholic and talk for hours, and they have a sort of a kinship there. Makes sense to me. So you also are individuals, but you're also connected with others. That was about as far as we got on Sunday, but we do need to get back. It seems like these front ends keep taking up all the time. I only have like nine minutes left. Let's, let's squeeze in what we can. Um, Romans 1.16, go there. That's where a lot of this started was Romans 1.16, if you remember the two perspectives came out of Romans 1.17 specifically. So Romans 1.16. I'm going to go quickly because we're going to forge on. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. I alluded to that earlier. It is the explosive power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Up here on the board, Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer. A person being saved daily is a person who is being sanctified daily. Here's our specific working framework on the topic of sanctification up here on the board. We've gotten so far as the first one, which is positional sanctification, on the manward side of things, phase one, if you would, of three. So positional, again, is all about imputed righteousness, judicial aspects, if you would. Here was our running definition up here on the board. God wills to sanctify the whole world by saving them through Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved from the penalty of sin are delivered to imputed righteousness through justification. A believer's position in Christ, then, is the greatest inspiration for holy living. That's the from faith or from uh, to faith part. 
It's from faith to faith. Last Thursday, the Spirit also gave us this on positional sanctification. We must remember this. All saints are equally sanctified in Christ. Since believers are sanctified judicially on the merits of Christ himself, he has become righteousness unto them. Positional sanctification is perfected in all those who are saved. In other words, one person is not more sanctified positionally than the next. And then this, again, was our graphic, just to help things out, our perspective, God's perspective. God sees the whole thing, our perspective. We're in Christ. We have a positional relationship with Christ, but yet we experience life. Ultimately, we're all going to be in heaven in the eternal state, which is going to be fantastic. And the key phrases there were your relative position to Christ never changes. Your relative experience with life always changes. In heaven, your position and experience will be unified. We looked at a practical illustration of positional versus experiential sanctification with the Corinthian church. In other words, we noted they were both positionally sanctified and experientially sanctified, but not always holy. Being sanctified experientially doesn't mean that you're always holy. You're not 100% holy the way that you would say you are positionally. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified positionally, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The context reveals that some in the Corinthian church were indeed believers, implies some weren't, but that's another topic. Paul also wrote to this group about their incomplete, a.k.a. progressive, sanctification experientially. That was 1 Corinthians 5.2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. So he's saying, you're perfectly sanctified positionally, but you're obviously not perfectly sanctified experientially because you're still arrogant. Again, the point of that scripture survey, that scriptural survey, was to point out that the Corinthians were, albeit in Christ positionally, they were experiencing life in both holy and unholy ways. We can all relate to that. Positional experiential sanctification then. While the Corinthians were holy, 2 Corinthians 9, 1-2, and unholy in life, 1 Corinthians 5, 1-2, 6, 1-8, In terms of experiential sanctification, they are said to have been sanctified positionally, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 6, 11. As our graphic illustrated, our relative experience to life is always changing, hence the two sides of the Corinthian sanctification in life. Let's grab the one verse we haven't looked at in the point of the board, up here on the board. 2 Corinthians 9, 2, For I know... Your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. That was just to say that you are bearing good fruit. You bear bad fruit because you're arrogant, but you also bear good fruit. You are perfectly sanctified positionally, but you're being experientially sanctified over time. So the other overarching principle that must not be overlooked is that context is key whenever we use the term sanctified or holy, or when we read them in the Bible. For example, we might rightly call each other holy brethren if and when we are speaking of positional things, which from both the salvation and sanctification perspectives, as we've been studying, is a judicial statement of fact. 
So positional things are always the judicial, imputed type stuff. Hebrews 10.10 in the Amplified. And in accordance with this will of God, we who believe in the message of salvation have been sanctified, that is, set apart as holy for God and His purposes through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed once for all. We can even take it one step further, knowing that even though our bodies are riddled with sin, our new self is pure, unable to be anything but righteous and sanctified. That's the law. New self, perfect. It's the thing we're going to take with us, right? Old self, good, bad. And they don't like each other very much. Go to Ephesians 4.20. So this too we know dogmatically from Scripture that this war carries on. This is why we're not perfectly sanctified in time. Even though we are being sanctified, set apart, matured. Ephesians 4.20 But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So the old self is on the table, bad. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. That's that Greek word in duo. Put on the new self, good which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we have these two selves, the old and the new. They are complete opposites. So these are the absolute facts regarding our position in Christ. We are saved and sanctified positionally. However, if we speak about life, we are only relatively holy. One is absolute positional, one is relative experiential, with a gradient that increases in slope as we mature. And there's just some food for thought before we got to go. One way to differentiate between positional statements and experiential statements in the Bible is to look for one particular clue. That is, who is completing this activity? Who is completing this activity. When we think about positional things, it's always God's judicial work. And so all the activities are attributed to Him. When we think of positional things, it's always God's judicial work, and so all the activities are attributed to Him. I mean, He even gave us the ability to believe. We're just like this humble lump of clay. Sounds good to me. You can believe, here's your faith, you're saved. All the activities, in other words, of positional things are all attributed in the Bible to Him. All the activity words, let's put it that way. However, when we think about experiential things, there's always a notion of a vessel of mercy in view. In other words, we become something we weren't the day before. We become something. I think this is where I'll end. We become something. And this is hard for people because I think, I believe a lot of people are confused about grace. They say, well, everything's God, and that is true. 
He is the one who sanctifies you. But let me ask you a question. Are you positionally sanctified right now? When he sees you, he sees righteousness, right? Is it yours? You bet it is. Of course it is. It, look, it's been given to you. It's been imputed to you. That makes it yours in that sense. Okay? No doubt about your positional sanctification. How about experiential sanctification? God says he will change you. So you were here, and now you're here. Who did the work? He did. Okay. But you were here, and now you're here. Who's here? You are. Think about that. So the, the activities that go on in life are attributed to you. How you got there? Mm-mm. What you're producing? Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm getting at? When you're controlled by the Spirit, you do spiritual things. That's what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Did the Spirit say, right now, I love you? True statement. Who said it? The Spirit or me? I said it. That was me saying that. That's who I am. That's a true statement. I've been changed. Before, I couldn't stand you. Now I love you. Huh? Who could tell? Who could say? I was here. Now I'm here. Right? That's the way it goes. But I'm not going to sit here and say, listen, that that wasn't me. The Holy Spirit says, do it. Tell him. Let him know. I've changed you. You're going to be you in heaven. Do you understand? The good things that you do, even right now, you do them. That's the amazing thing. How you were able to become that person, all God's work. But once you become that person, as God's work, you are an instrument of righteousness, and he uses you. It's you. If you don't think it's you, then you go like this. I guess I'll just do nothing then. I'll make no decisions whatsoever because, you know, everything's from God, and, uh, you know, he'll have to pick me up off my couch. He'll have to, you get what I'm getting at? you've made better decisions here than you did there. Why? Because he sanctified you. Is he right there saying, make the right decision, do the right thing? Is that the filling of the Spirit? You bet. But he he wasn't trying to tell you something different when you were here, was he? No. He said, still the right thing to do. And you said, I'm not listening. You matured. He said, still the right thing to do. He said, oh, I'm listening now. I'm with you. I want to do this. My motivation's good. I have been changed. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. I went from here to here. I don't take any credit for it, but I'm here now, and this is who I am. And I want to go on the missionary field. I want to push through. I want to fight the good fight. Do you understand? So when you see things like that, people get squirrely. People say, oh, wait a minute, what about the grace of God? It's all about it. Look, I'm not trying to take credit for doing anything. But this is where we are. This is who we are. Once we're changed. Once we're sanctified. Don't be afraid of that. You're an instrument of righteousness. As you're sanctified, you become that thing. That's part of the blessing. 
Think about that. We're out of time by four minutes. I am what I am by the grace of God. Never said I could tell time. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.